Today, we talk foxes, burial, scribes, and the cost of discipleship. This is Michael Stevens. This is the Frequency Podcast. So today we're going to be jumping into Matthew 8, 18 through 22. And there's certainly some commentary I'm going to give from a personal perspective on the passage, but we're going to stick mostly to the cultural side of this. Uh, I'm going to go ahead and read the passage and we'll jump in. It says, now when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to go over to the other side. And a scribe came to him and said, teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. Another of the disciples said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. Now, the first thing is to remember the context that we're just coming off of. Jesus has been healing sick and and casting out demons. And the people, it says there was a crowd around him. The people are beginning to crowd Jesus. And Jesus gives orders to to leave and to go over to the other side. And the the purpose of Jesus leaving and going over to the other side is he, he understands the hearts of the people and the people being stirred. They've been hearing incredible revelatory uh, teaching, Jesus claiming his own authority, repeatedly making claims that puts him in equal status with God. And they're, they're seeing him demonstrate the power that they are looking for in a Messiah. And, and I'll reiterate this probably a thousand times as we go through the book of Matthew, but it's important to remember that the people were not looking for a savior, someone to lay down their lives, someone to die on the cross for them. They were looking for a Messiah. There were, there were two uh, there were two visions of a Messiah. There was Messiach ben David and Messiach ben Joseph. And one was this suffering servant and the other was this militant leader. And they were certainly looking for the militant leader. No one ever pictured, there was actually arguments amongst the, the rabbis that maybe there were two different messiahs or two comings of the Messiah because they were depicted in such drastically different ways um, in the text and, and foreshadowed in such drastically different ways in the text. But with the people here under Roman oppression, uh, under the Roman Empire, they are without question, they are looking for this militant Messiah to rise up. So as the crowd is gathering around Jesus, it's not that Jesus is trying to get away from healing people. He's he's moving away from the crowd pressure. And we see this happen multiple times in the Gospels where he knows that they're actually going to try and crown him king and, and speed up a timeline that he is is not ready to speed up. And so he sees the people coming around him and he gives orders to go to the other side. And so you have this picture of Jesus is on his way about to get into a boat to, to cross the sea. And it says a scribe came to him and said, teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. Now, first off, it's important to understand a little bit about the scribes. Uh, the scribes, they were basically this group of individuals and they had um, authority and, and leadership in Israel. And in the, the New Testament, they're typically associated with uh, Pharisees and, and high priests, and they're typically seen as opponents um, to Jesus. But when you get into the Mishnah, it, it actually, uh, they're, they're kind of these pre-Rabbinic teachers. So prior to the, 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 the rabbinic era coming in and Hillel and Shammai and then, you know, moving into Jesus as this was established, um, they, were, they were teachers that had authority, they were also, uh, you, you could call them like copyrightists. They, they handled um, contracts and local contracts and things like that. And they, they had a, a pretty interesting uh, history, actually, when you, you get into the scribes. Uh, one of the best known scribes is Ezra. 
uh, he was a scribe and a priest. He was extremely powerful uh, religious leader in, in the Bible. And obviously we, we have the book, you know, after Ezra. And the reality is, is had there not been these, they called him copyists, had there not been these copyists and interpreters, um, we wouldn't have the biblical text the way we do today. And so because of their constant viewing of the text and their constant copying the text and their, and their meticulous nature in which they wrote it down, they actually became very quickly became seen as people having authority or understanding of, of the text. So as you move forward under the, the Greek world, there were these um, non-priestly scribes that were, were, were added in, in in large numbers because uh, not, all, not all Pharisees were scribes and not all priests were scribes, but many scribes were priests um, and Pharisees. And so I'm not going to get into a, a, a ton of detail on this, but it's important to understand that the, the New Testament period scribes, that they were teachers, they were authoritative leaders. Um, again, they were often drawn from from priests and Levites, but they were also drawn from uh, common people. And the, the, each of the gospel writers kind of portrays them uh, similar but different. Mark portrays them as high officials, they advisors of the chief priests, teachers of the law. Um, and they were obviously opposed to Jesus. Matthew presents them as, as very learned of, of the text and, and leaders in the community. Luke portrays them as kind of this like connection or appendage to the Pharisees um, who were protecting. They thought they were protecting uh, Judaism and they were leaders that were associated with uh, the chief priests. So regardless of, of where they were in government and where they served, it's, it's obvious that most of the time they they were seeking to preserve Judaism as the way that they understood it and not necessarily as it should be or um, ought to be lived. And so it's interesting that you have this, this passage where it, it almost seems like out of place that all of a sudden we go from miracles to all of a sudden these guys are approaching Jesus and asking to follow him. And the first one is a scribe. And I believe the reason Matthew positions a story here is because he saw this as a miracle as well. Uh, that somebody who who knew the text and was religious about the text and was uh, so focused on the outward expression and keeping of the text and missing the heart of it, that they would actually come to follow Jesus. Now understand, this isn't just, hey, Jesus, can, can I get in my boat and follow you? This is Jesus, can I go with you? And in fact, we see an allusion here in verse 19 to the book of Ruth where um, Ruth says to Naomi, where you go, I'll go. And so he actually, there's a, there's an actual allusion here or a remiss as we've talked about before where he's actually quoting, I think it's, I have to go back and look. I think it's like Ruth one sixteen or something like that, or eight sixteen. Anyway, there's a, but we see this allusion to the text and this, this, uh, undying devotion is, is Ruth provided to, um, to Naomi. And so <clears throat> Jesus says to him, Hey, listen, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. And we'll unpack the term son of man later on and how it's used. But ultimately you have this picture of Jesus is about to get on a boat and cross the sea. And the scribe comes up to him and Matthew sees this as a miracle that he's willing to set aside his own reputation um, to leave the group of people that he is currently with, the, the people that are, are standing in opposition to Jesus. And he says, I, I want to follow you. But Jesus, you know, does something that is a little bit contrary to how most people want us to see Jesus today in the world. This is where I'm going to give a little bit of personal commentary. Most people, when they refer to Jesus, they they only ever refer to Jesus as the loving Jesus, the kind Jesus, the accepting Jesus. And we 
tend to forget these passages where Jesus lays down some pretty hard stuff. And Jesus is um, conversationally confrontational, where Jesus has this guy who's of notoriety, who is willing to potentially leave behind his his status and the people that he's connected with to, to be a, a town beneath, to be a disciple of Jesus. And rather than Jesus just say, hey, yeah, come with me, like join, be one of my Talmudim, come with me. Jesus lays down a, a stark reminder here, a very tough reminder. And he says, listen, if you come with me, I want you to understand your life of comfort, it goes away. Like animals literally know where they're going to sleep. Birds know where they're going to land. And I don't. I'm getting in a boat and I'm going to the other side and I'm going to see where my father leads me. I'm going to see where the spirit takes me. And we obviously don't see this guy become one of Jesus's inner Talmudim. And so it's important to remember that while Jesus is kind and loving and accepting, Jesus is also blatantly truthful in calling a spade a spade and, and making sure that we know what we're getting into. Jesus never coerced anyone into following him. Um, he always laid down, he, he always laid it down clearly and explained it, uh, the difficulty that would come with it. I mean, even I was in prayer this morning and I was, I was, praying this verse back to Jesus where he says in the world, you will have trouble, but I leave you my peace. He didn't give him this, you know, foo-foo idea of like, Hey, I'm going to die. I'm going to resurrect. I'm going to give you the Holy spirit. And things are going to be awesome. He goes, no, listen, you're going to have trouble, but I'll leave you my peace. Even in his departure, he let us know the difficult times that we would face that would come ahead. Now there's another one. It says another of the disciples. Now it's important to understand. Remember, in the rabbinic culture, a rabbi typically had 10 to 14 Talmudim. Those were the disciples that followed him, lived with him, walked with him. They learned his, what they called halak, which means the, the way that he walks out Torah. So like when David tells the Lord, teach me your commands, he's actually saying, teach me the way that you walk. Um, teach me the way that that you live. That And there's a very different concept of discipleship in the Western world versus the Eastern world. And I'll share this before I move on and finish this up that uh, I give you an example. I read a story of a, a sculptor from Chicago and she won this once in a lifetime apprenticeship. It's like a once in a lifetime deal. And she goes to, um, I forget which Asian country it is over somewhere in Asia minor. And she, she moves in with this family. He's this world renowned sculptor. Uh, he's supposed to be the best in the world and she's supposed to be there for a year. And after a few months, she gets frustrated and she leaves because the entire time she was there, he never let her actually sculpt anything, but she did the dishes. She did the chores. She folded laundry. And when she would fold something, he would say, no, you, you fold it this way. When she would wash something, the wife would say, no, you wash it this way. And she was never allowed to sculpt. And this whole time she was living with this family, doing what they do, learning the way that they did things on a day in day out basis. She was like, what am I doing? I'm not sculpting. You know, I feel like I'm just a, a maid here. I'm not learning anything. And so she flew home. Uh, she left this apprenticeship early and she sat down at her sculpting wheel for the first time in months. And when she did, she began sculpting at a level of skill that she had never sculpted at in her entire life. And she realized that living with them on a day in day out basis and doing the things that they did, she was learning that his skill and his gifting, it was not simply contained it to when he sat down to sculpt. Um, it was, it was part of everything in his life contributed to that and was a foundation for it. And by her living with him and learning the way they did things, she was actually following in his footsteps. And so there's this concept in discipleship in, in the rabbinic culture that you had 
lots of people that would be following you at a distance. But the goal was to become one of the Tamudim. The goal was for the, the rabbi to test you and to feel like you had what it took to actually become one of his Tamudim. So this, it says when another disciple says, let me go bury my father. This isn't one of the 12. This isn't one of the Tamudim. This is one of the people that is, they're a disciple of Jesus. They're a follower of Jesus, but they have not yet made it in to become one of his Tamudim. And then Jesus says, follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. And there's lots of, you know, uh, interpretations of this passage and, and what this means. But ultimately there was, this came down to one of two things that was taking place here. One, the uh, father was not dead at all. And he was saying, he, he, this is normal in the Middle Eastern culture that he wanted to wait until he had fulfilled all of his, his duties and his vows to his father and his father died before he came and followed Jesus. So that's one option. He's delaying this a very long time. The second was after someone died in, in, in that area of the world, they would let the body go ahead and decompose for about a year. And after the body decomposed, they would then go exhume the body and then they would break down the bones and they would put the bones in the boxes and these, these boxes of bones would get stored in like these kind of closets or storage rooms with all the bones of their family, family members. That's why when you see throughout the text, it says, and he was laid to rest with his fathers or he was put to rest with his fathers. It means that his bones had been broken down and was put in a box and was stuck in some tomb or some like storage area somewhere in the ground where he was laid to rest with his father. So all of their bones were actually contained in this one place. So my personal opinion is most likely that's the one we're looking at here is that his father has died, but there's still this waiting period before they actually go finally put his father to rest. And Jesus is saying, Hey, listen, let the dead go bury their own dead. Like this is, he's in other words, he's already dead. Quit making excuses. And again, this is the, this is the part of Jesus that we, we tend to like to skip over and we forget that Jesus will never ask us to do anything that he has not clearly laid out for us the difficulty of. Um, sometimes we like to be naive about it and we, we like to push it off and we like to think the best. Uh, but Jesus was always very clear about what it would cost to follow him. And then he allowed people to count the cost of discipleship before they actually became a disciple. Hope that's helpful. Thanks again for listening. This is Michael Stevens. This is the Frequency Podcast. 